This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. Welcome to the Constructionist Podcast, and in tonight's episode, we are going to be discussing the life of Christ as a new series, and as hosts of this podcast, we strive to provide you with relevant and compassionate worldview framework that will help guide you through life. So we believe that in order to achieve this, it's important to, quote, get our house in order. So this means first learning to love and care for ourselves is essential before you truly fully can love and care for others. So in this podcast series, we're going to look at how Christ loves us and how we love Christ and develop a framework of Jesus. We're going to be honest about this conversation. We're going to give you possibly some new thoughts about this person. We're going to take a very sometimes pragmatic and also spiritual view. So we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we're going to examine the life of Christ through a honest lens. So by doing so, we hope to offer some insights and perspectives that will help you in your journey towards greater understanding, love, and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that tonight's episode, we will not be fabricating anything. We're going to be honest. Many, many people have fabricated the information about Jesus, and we are not going to do that to you tonight. Tonight is going to start with a very honest view about what the Bible says. We're going to start with the book of Mark, take an authentic perspective on our examination through the text. So the text is going to guide us tonight. We're going to look at what Mark said about Christ, what Mark said about the acts and the miracles, and also just the person of Jesus. So in previous episodes, we've discussed that there's a potential pitfall of simply deconstructing old ideas without moving towards a new understanding. So it's important to avoid getting stuck in a cycle of maybe perpetuating the same patterns of behavior that we sought to change in the first place. So instead, we need a fresh perspective and a new framework to construct healthy habits and also healthy behaviors and also healthy belief patterns. So that's why the Constructionist Podcast is a space for exploring new ideas and presenting practical thoughts and perspectives and theologies to daily life. So we aim to provide a platform, to be honest, and authentic discussing relevant topics as you as a listener we maybe you can find new ways to live purposeful and meaningful in your own life so tonight's episode we're excited to share our best attempt at exploring practical ways to apply new ideas and theologies and so we are going to look at the life of christ through the book of mark so a note to our supporters if you enjoy the constructionist podcast we want to su- want 
you just and you want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or the show notes on the social media platform that you listen to and visit our give page on resonatelife.org. So your support will enable us to provide and produce high quality content like this on a weekly basis. But even more importantly than that, we want to hear from you and engage with you on our chat and not only tonight, but also through the week. So we believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can con continue to develop what we call a communal hermeneutic together. A communal hermeneutic is a community of understanding that can grow together. So we value your feedback. We value your questions. We value your ideas. And we're excited to build a community around a shared exploration of new ideas and perspectives. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us on the chat live. We'll answer these questions tonight and know that you can reach out to us through the week if you listen to this at any other time besides Thursday evening at eight o'clock Pacific Standard Time. So thank you, Sharia. I'm really glad that you're here. Sharia comes to us. We're actually coming to this topic as more um, expert with some expertise because we do have education and background and also practical knowledge in theology. So we're coming at this a little more learned. And so Sharia has her master's in theology. She comes to the table with some um, very deep study in the Hebrew language and also the Greek language. So I'm very excited to have her with us tonight and really on a regular basis because she helps us with a lot of language and semiotics with language. Jake Flug, thank you, Jake, for joining us. He also has our, his master's degree in theology, and I'm really thankful that he can be here tonight to talk about systematic theology and also some deeper topics when it comes to, let's just call it, quote, the historical Jesus, and we'll get into that through our discussion. And so we're going to allow the text... I don't know if I'm your Say one more time. on systematic, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you are an expert in a lot of theology, uh, ecological theology especially, but mm -hmm. you bring to the table a lot of systematic theology that I am quite unfamiliar with. So I'm excited to uh, participate in that discussion with you. But most importantly, I want to emphasize this again. This is going to be an honest discussion. This is not going to be a fabricated, this is what your parents taught you, this is what the preacher taught you as a child about Jesus. There's a lot of things that have been perpetuated, promoted, and said to be inspired from stages that are not anywhere close to the inspiration of, let's say, the book of Mark. And so we are going to walk through the text and see what the text is and how the text is constructed and look at Jesus in a very, very real way. So I'm going to just start off by reading. And I think it's important to just start by the introduction instead of me introducing uh, Jesus in this way. I'm going to allow the text to introduce Jesus. Tonight, I'm going to read from the Common English Bible, but that's not where we're going to stay. We're definitely going to be in some different translations. And so know that translations of Scripture, especially ancient texts, translations are a group of people 
got together and made their best attempt, honest attempt, really sometimes, many times, about what they think and thought the uh, the group of Greek words or the group of Hebrew words meant in the context of the people of that day. But just know that in translations, it's not the language that it was written in. So the Bible was not written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's important to understand also that there's Greek context. They lived in a Greek society, a Roman society, like in the book of Mark, like in some of the, uh, the, the Hebrews or the Israelite people lived many times in captivity under Assyrian and Babylonian rule. Uh, they also lived in a very Jewish context as well. So, uh, so just know that those cultural nuances or those cultural ideas are buried sometimes in the text, which makes the text very allegorical. It makes a lot of metaphor. It lends itself to metaphor. It lends itself to imagery. It lends itself to maybe, let's say, an interpretation on top of an interpretation on top of an interpretation. So we need to look at scripture and ancient text in this way. So let's begin with some, as the title of some of your uh, scripture says it's the beginning of the good news, which is interesting. Mark does not start with the birth narrative like it's Christmas time. Mark starts with John the Baptist. And so Mark 1.1, it says the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, <clears throat> God's son. Happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. A voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. All right. So we're going to get hung up there, I'm sure. Uh, right now, I am going to talk through what the Son of God actually means. And the Son of God is a term that in ancient text is used quite loosely and it's used in a way that is different for different contexts so when you read son of god or god's son just know that that is a titling number one and so there's a titling aspect to it and people get confused about what and when they read something in English, that has to be, well, that's the Son of God. Well, then what does Son of David mean? And what does what does this other titling, the Son of, given to a person that's just a, a mere person in, in Scripture? So the Son of God or God's Son or Son of someone is used quite often in different uh, contexts. So when we read Son of God, sometimes we automatically go to the virgin birth. And the virgin birth in traditional, let's say, evangelicalism, or sometimes I would say in certain veins of orthodoxy, it sends the message. The message goes right to this divine spiritual sperm impregnate, impregnation of Mary, making God Jesus's father and Jesus God's son in like a biological sense. Well, if you want to read um, some interesting 
and very profound ideas about the virgin birth, please look into what the virgin birth and the actual word virgin means to an original listener. Uh, it could mean maiden, it could be young maiden, it could be somebody that is singular, somebody singular, or independent. So there's a lot of there's a lot of interpretations for the virgin birth. It does not make Mary some lesser person if she's not considered this miraculous virgin. It doesn't make her any less if she wasn't spiritually let's say, impregnated by God. We don't know exactly what went on. I'm not watching what is happening at the conception of Jesus. I wasn't there. I could make my good guesses, but honestly, that's usually where we go when we hear son of God. And that's not where we need to go. Uh, we don't need to go to the virgin birth because son of God is is a is a historical idea sometimes we go to the trinity when we hear son of god sometimes we go to maybe you're used to a historical creed when you hear son of god um i would say that in many many writings the son of or son of god is basically a a titling of authority so there's some kind of titling of authority when it comes to son of so like mark 3 when we go over mark 3 what you'll find is the son of thunder so a person is named the son of thunder it's a titling um if you uh if you look at sons of abraham uh, like in terms of son of God in John 8, 39, or if you look at the sons of the devil. So there's, there's a lot of son of that shows a reflection of the character of that something. So it's a resemblance. It's like a image of. So it's an image of this other thing. So if I'm the son of Fred, who is my father, son of Fred, means that I am an image of Fred. I, I could be an image of, though, another mentor in my life, and I could be called the son of that mentor because this framework of my life is the son of or the image of. So Jesus called the son of David means that Jesus is the image of David. Yet I would say, as that is said as a resemblance, the only physical manifestation of God that we have is said to be Jesus. And so I would reverse that, as some many theologians do in the progressive, progressive vein, and they say that son of actually means God is a resemblance of Jesus. God is an image of Jesus. So give me your thoughts on son of. Let's unpack that a little bit and talk more about the son of. Um, I have two things. First is that throughout scripture, there was multiple people that were called the son of God. Oh, sorry. Is my, my audio bad? Give me a second. Sorry. 
or called the son of God, David definitely is one of them. And so Jesus calling, or Mark calling Jesus son of God is hearkening back to that Davidic rule as well. Um, Also, when you look at son of God in the Roman period, uh, everyone had this phrase in their pockets at all time because the, the coins were stamped with the, the Caesar of the day and Caesar, son of God. And so there was an authority piece, um, but it's also a cultural piece that there is authority and there is um, prominence that go with this title. Um, yeah, I think, I think most of it is going towards that way instead of saying Jesus, the direct line of God. Well, I think um, that in our, so- if I could just add to that, isn't it a rebellious, also a rebellious type of thing against Caesar too? Like if you were going to call somebody a son of, it's almost like I am a member of, not of this state or not of this nation. I'm a son of God. Well, There's I mean, a political, was like a social political idea, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was. I think it was saying that that Caesar didn't have power over over Jesus. Right. Caesar was already right. the son of, the of God. Same, of the same authority. Yeah. Right. Um, is it then fair to say that Mark is not making a claim to Jesus' divinity yet? I would say so. I mean, it just because it says God's son or son of God is not a declaration of like a Trinitarian declaration or anything. Yeah, I think, I think it's the it's kind point of a big deal that mm-hmm. yeah. the the only gospel that Jesus comes out in is God is John. And so as we read through Mark, uh, Mark's called the hidden gospel. And so. So Jesus' divinity is hidden all the way through, and so as you're as you're reading through it, um, Jesus is hiding. He's in deserted places. He comes deserted places. He preaches deserted places, and so out of hiding, God comes. And so there there could be a, a ploy to divinity here, but I think that's teased out more than than just I think there's more to the Son of God than that is geopolitical than than mm-hmm. claim based. Um, this might be going in the opposite direction, but I was also thinking about the Exodus series that we did a little over a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a figure in the Exodus story that also like there's a link to divine parentage. It might've been Pharaoh, um, but it's like a way of lending authority to, to that person. Yeah. Pharaoh was son of right. Mm. This is right. This is our hero, the hero of the story. They're like a God. Do you think there's any, um, like any of that cultural kind of thing going on within this narrative? Well, I mean, it's safe to say that most all, uh, if anything has a Jewish context to it or a Jewish overtone to it of any kind, it's filtered through the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. It's filtered through the Exodus narrative. The Exodus narrative was such a centrality to Judaism, but just the Hebrew people in general, 
that uh, anybody that was the sons of Abraham, there would have been a there would have been a filter through that Exodus. You can't celebrate something like the Exodus and then write the book of Mark and mm -hmm. with, you know, a bunch of people around you that celebrated the ex Exodus every year and not filter your language through that. So, right. yes, I would say that's really um, that's how powerful the book of Exodus is. The narrative mm -hmm. of the book of Exodus is a powerful story that it changed their language. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that son of? I mean, it's it's interesting that other the two other main gospels, um, they start with a genealogy, mm -hmm. and so we could be entering into the midst of a genealogy here. Um. Mm. I don't, I don't know how, how much that has credence, but the, the idea that, that Jesus has not come by Jesus' own power, but a, a, the son of statement shows, shows integrity with the past. And mm. so the, the, the Hebrew would just bar and right, right. Um, and we even like even in our culture we have we have son of um mm. gosh if i could just like in last names yeah. johnson La richard last King. name yeah so like we oh, have... i thought you were talking i thought you were talking Thompson. about sob <laughs> i was like yes, wow we're getting really grainy here um so yes i would say that that language is pretty i guess congruent or or uh pretty standard through all languages i would i would guess because even the even the the languages like the other latin languages that are you know connected to yeah or have you know like relationship to um english would definitely um have that kind of connection with endings and feminine masculine type yeah um, context and, and build. So I think we have two chapters to go through. So let's, yeah. I mean, I was just going to mention though, that Isaiah, Isaiah nine talks about there, mm. a child is born, a son is born. And so now in Mark, we have this Isaiah passage that comes out, um, and definitely, definitely Isaiah 40, you know, is a different Isaiah than Isaiah 9. There's actually, I know there's more, but there's three main Isaiahs. And the three main Isaiahs, Isaiah 1, 2, and 3, Isaiah is a compilation of those three uh, Isaiah's, their writings. So, and it, it's all called Isaiah, but Isaiah nine is different than Isaiah 40. From so this context. is a different context, different situation, different, different activity authors. post. Yeah. So 
so it says, look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Let's unpack that. What do you think? I, Having I not read the text in a while, I just thought it was notable that it wasn't the virgin prophecy. Mm. Yeah. Because that's always what we jump to. Um, and that's not what this text is doing at all. It's pointing to something different. Right. Well, some traditionalists would say it points to John the Baptist, of course. Right. Right. Um, what I would say for this is anytime we see Old Testament passages being used in the New Testament, mm -hmm. they don't play by the same rule. <laughs> No, you're fine. That we play with, or play by. And so this is called this is that interpretation of scripture. Uh, I also call halakhic interpretation, where you look at ancient texts and you kind of are anachronistic with it. So you bring it forward and say, this proves my point. And so this is moving, like this prophecy could be towards John. So it's a beautiful passage, um, and it fits. We have to be really careful with Isaiah, how it's used, and and what's going on. Um, the idea is that when we look at the Messiah figure of history, and that's what Isaiah is, is pointing towards, is this Isaiah figure, that there were there right. are many there were many messiahs throughout throughout the. Mm -hmm. Jewish history, your mic is bad too, Kevin. Your uh, uh, there's there's many messiahs throughout all of history, and and each one could point back to this text that paths were made straight for them. So the the tracks were greased, and here they come. Um, mm -hmm. Moses is a messiah figure. David's a messiah figure. The judges were all messiahs, and so. Um, when you start to get into the exile period, the Messiah figure is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Jesus mm. comes and it's the exact opposite of what was expected. It was not this, this political figure, but this healer. And so we get, we get a much different interpretation of all these texts now, which is just cool. I would say that Isaiah though, this passage is definitely, if I, um, I need to open it up again. I'm sending a messenger before you. He will prepare the way, a voice shouting, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And when I, when I study that verse, making the paths straight, that has definitely the introduction to the book of Mark, uh, justice. So there's a justice type definition to making our paths straight, making the will of God realized in justice right now. So preparing that way. Um, so there is definitely the book of Mark is an action book. It's not necessarily this just storybook with all kinds of 
you know, beautiful vineyards and trees and wells and, and such of story going on. It's definitely an action or an action type figure book. And right at the beginning, it's a, it's, there's a social justice or, or there's a justice uh, connotation. So it makes me think that Sharia, you're, you're right when it comes to the empire and the son of God being in the face of empire. And then now we have one of the biggest justice verses out of Isaiah that said right at the beginning that this is, this is the beginning of, and this is the definition of the Jesus ministry. Yeah. And we have, I, I talked to a group last week about call and response. And so Throughout the Gospels, there's snippets of passages from Old Testament, especially Isaiah, the Psalms, where one verse would be sung by a rabbi and the entire rest of the passage would be would be pronounced by a congregation together. And so I, I, I see this being an, an instance of that as well, where um, Isaiah 40 um Isaiah 40 Isaiah. talks about a blessing to all the nations, all mm -hmm. the lands, mm -hmm. everyone. There'll be rest for the weary. There'll be justice. There'll be peace. And so the ministry of Jesus laid out really, um, and the, probably the, the outline of Mark also mm -hmm. is laid out in Isaiah 40, if you go back and read it, that mm -hmm. it is, is a shadow text of, of, all of, the, uh, of all the book to come. Yeah, I'm looking at Isaiah 40 right now, and the very next verse is verse 4. It says, every valley will be raised up, and every mountain and hill will be flattened. Um, and I think that really paints that idea of justice, of, of things being leveled out and made equal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that there definitely is a justice uh, theme that runs through because mm -hmm. Jesus came in the in the said year of Jubilee. And you can tell by other gospels that he was here for the year of Jubilee or to usher in rather the year of Jubilee, but making a yeah. path for the Lord or making a path, making the pathway of God um, and creating that pathway of God means in the upside down mountain or the upside down kingdom, the least will be first and the first will be least or last or first, that that idea that those that are marginalized, those that are last um, oppressed or pushed to the margins, those people will then bring forth the glory of God. So as Moses on the mountain accepted the law in the book of Exodus, accepted the law, the glory of God, then flowed through Moses through a structure of law and principles, as you see in the Levitical law, that, that God's glory flowed through that. But then those structures got very strict. Those structures through pharisaical uh, practices got very, um, very legalistic and very abusive, pushing people to the margins again. So that's why we have Jesus picking up people on the, basically the sides of roads and next to um, next to homes and stuff where pe Jesus is actually healing people and lifting up the marginalized and turning the kingdom 
upside down. So the kingdom of God is for such as those people that they will bring forth the glory of God. So making those paths straight means if you just read simply the the idea of justice through that scripture, that making those paths straight is you will do the work for the addict. You will do the work for the houseless. You will do the work for, and that is preparing the way for the glory of God to be shown. That's just what I, what I see as really a common theme through much of the gospel story. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yes, Jake, something else I just two noticed. Chapters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, where it. it says, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. I think we tend to assume this is talking about Jesus because we're conflating mm. Jesus with God. Um, but Mark's not doing that yet. Isaiah yeah, we're not wasn't doing yet. that because Jesus wasn't a thing no. yet. Right. Um, so I think that's an important thing to note that, that in this passage, the word Lord is likely not talking about Jesus. Yeah, and so the messenger actually would be Jesus. Right, not John the Baptist. God's son, as it is a prophecy of Isaiah, I am sending mm -hmm. a messenger. It has nothing to do with John the Baptist. It is it is right. It is in it is in colon with uh verse one. Mm-hmm. Well but and and <laughs> sorry. And I mean, honestly, though, it could be both because you have type and anti-type. You, you continually have pre-Jesus and Jesus and post-Jesus. So Isaiah in that passage would have been talking about one of two situations, would have been talking about himself or he would have been talking about the group of Israel that he would have been talking about the sons of Abraham, the, the family of Yahweh. And so either he's talking about himself or he's talking about the, the, the people of Israel. When you advance forward and you start reading the prophecy forward, then you begin to see, well, this is either the type or the anti-type of Jesus. So John the Baptist being the, like the pre-Jesus. But then, so then you read Jesus into the passage of Isaiah. And then fourthly, you read the church into the passage of Isaiah. So there could be up to four different readings of the Isaiah passage that I don't think that we can really know who really Isaiah is talking about. But that Mishnah activity where they're taking scripture and they're deepening it, they're making it their own, they're applying it in the way that they think it needs to be applied. I mean, the author of the book of Mark could be uh, doing that. Um, did we lose Jake? I don't know. <laughs> That's okay. Well, Sheree, this will be a discussion between you and I for a while. So, yep. um, so verse four, we're in verse four. Yeah. We need to move forward. <laughs> We're never going to make yes, it. Yes, we this. do. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> so John was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts 
and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan and there he's coming back in. That's good because he was wanting to speak about this passage. Jake was. Mm -hmm. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He announced, one stronger than I am is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to, uh, I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right. So let's just start talking about this because I think just giving a yeah. framework of John the Baptist is important. Some people think that John the Baptist was, you know, because of the way that people have depicted how he looks, John the Baptist is like this impoverished, um, homeless person that's living out in the middle of the wilderness with like ratty clothes and, and ratty hair and he has maybe even very little to offer and mm -hmm. and he's just outside the wall of Jerusalem and he's an outcast. That's actually not true about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an Essene. John the Baptist is definitely a person that was part of a very exclusive people group. And the Essenes are noted for this, that they didn't have children. They were, they were, they were meant to be celibate and they lived outside of the walls. And so they lived in the quote wilderness. And so John the Baptist is seen as a very independent, um, said person. Um, but what's really interesting is Mark makes a good point. The book of Mark says that John wore clothes made of camel's hair mm -hmm. with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. So, so that in and of itself, that idea means that John the Baptist had means. He wasn't necessarily this impoverished outcast. He actually had means. And the means that, that he had were this. Camel's hair, a leather belt, and ate locusts and honey. Wild honey. So camel's hair, just like any other hair that we would wear, or a fur that we would wear, this idea of fur is there, that any fur that we wear, it takes killing an animal and tanning that fur and stitching it together and making a, a cloth, clothing piece made of camel's hair. And then the leather belt means he had means of some kind of like animal skin. So he had animal skin as a belt. He also had animal skin as uh, maybe a coat or maybe uh, the, the, the clothes that he wore. But he also ate locusts 
and wild honey. And locusts are seasonal animals. They're seasonal insects. And so the collection of locust would have been a delicacy and also wild honey. Wild honey is something that you hunt for. It's not something that, well, some people in, in ancient times, they would have had to go get it uh, and collect it, hunt for it. And so wild honey and locusts would have been delicacies of meal. So not only was he dressed in expensive clothes, he was eating expensive things. So that definitely just lifts this out of the I'm an impoverished outcast and I live outside the city walls as some you know, person without means. It puts John the Baptist um, definitely in the means category. Sherry, I want you to unpack that more mm -hmm. for us. That Yeah, well, I have a question related to that. So we're pretty sure John the Baptist was an Essene, right? Um, and the Essenes were um, separate from the rest of Israelite society, yeah. right? Like there was this idea of um, society isn't pure enough for us. We're going to right. have our own little society outside the city walls. We're actually like the true pure Israel. Um I'm wondering about that kind of community and John the Baptist's apparent wealth. Like, is that a community that can have that kind of wealth and how does that work? Well, to live outside the city walls means that you have means. Where did their wealth uh, come from? Somebody's got to fund know. that commune project somebody's got to fund that 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 exercise um yeah so they're living outside of protection they're living outside of mm -hmm. like regular means so obviously they had some kind of um i have not done a lot of research on the essenes i do know that they preserved texts i do know that they preserved mm -hmm. um ancient things and so there he is I know that they preserve uh, <laughs> different um, things. So, so when it says okay, very large for a second here, that that all I know. Good to have you back, Jake. Thanks. All I know is is that they had means. Where they got mm -hmm. it from, I have no idea. Do you know, Jake, where the scenes got their means? So, a couple things about the scenes that are interesting we don't actually know if they existed or not uh um, okay we only know that they existed because of what was left behind uh, mm -hmm. and that was found in 1971 or two right dead sea um, scrolls the dead sea scrolls and that community that was found it's kind of we know and so through that time in 1971 forward or 40s i forget when the dead sea scrolls came out we help me kevin Oh boy, forties. I'm not. Yeah, I maybe remember. I can't uh, remember. I'll look it up. So that's the, that's the first time that really we knew for certain that there was this exterior community, um, mm -hmm. and so they could be funded via the zealots robbing, mm. uh, robbing caravans, mm. Romans. Um, they could be funded 
agriculturally. They could be they the people that lived outside the city gates were farmers. And so um uh they could be in kibbutzes out there uh farming and having an agriculture base. Mm. They uh So they could have been self contained, basically. They they were probably self contained. They were outside of protection, which need, means they need protection themselves. Although Rome mm-hmm. at the time uh as the police force was doing a pretty good job at, at keeping marauders and mm-hmm. and bandits mm-hmm. at a little bit of a bay. Um but with with the wealth that John had and what he had access to, uh he was obviously in some type of trade route. Um he had to have access to honey. Mm-hmm. He had to have access to to the little locusts that were seasonal. We talked about that earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I when you were that. gone, we unpacked that when you were gone there for a little bit. And so what's really what's really interesting about the Dead Sea Scrolls is the only reason why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls is because of bat crap. Like like the flying bat crap. So so in the Qumran caves of where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they were actually found between 1946 and 1956. Thanks. So those were found during that time. So, so when they would store uh, scrolls, they would roll the scroll and they would put it in a jar, some kind of clay jar, and then they would put those in these caves in the Qumran area there, um, the Middle East, they would put the the jars in these caves. And then bats then would hang from these caves and their bat guano, their bat crap, would fall down onto these jars, filling up over the top of these jars. So over a long period of time, these clay jars were sealed in caves. So the reason why we have the Bible today, the way we have it and the authority, but also the cross-referencing and the changes that were made of some of the oldest manuscripts is because of that crap. And the cool thing about that three schools, especially when you line it up against their fragments to what we have, um, we're at like a 99% accuracy throughout our entire text. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. So that was that was an important find, um, but yeah. So so they were outside agriculture based, um, rich. Yeah, we were just discussing where did they get that money. That's what we can't figure out. Like, why why did they have that money? It just seems it seems really uh, really interesting that they were just. Mm-hmm able to live outside the walls at least for what we imagine them to be mm-hmm. because yeah. since since we don't really know a lot about the Essenes as I like, could it be you know this small group of people I mean was it just 15 people or was it 1500 people I well, mean how many enough that people is enough that people knew about John's followers and how many they were, they were baptizing yeah, so like wh- how many? Enough. Hundred? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, mean two hundred? Like, I mean think You about gotta much, if you're not gonna have kids. Think about how much <laughs> yeah. money uh the Bogwan had, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And so 
just because followers were selling everything and moving out into the desert, the Bodwan. The Bodwan the was the head of the Rajneeshi group that was in Central Oregon. For those of you who don't know, okay. who the Bodwan is the and Bogwan so, yeah. or the Bodwan? Bodwan. 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 And so, yeah. if you just think of the same principle, because it's kind of kind of the same. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the idea is that they sold everything and they left it all to come and be a part of this community so if they brought the cash with them there could be there yeah, could be some true. coin hanging around yeah that's true sure you had some interesting thoughts in our pre-discussion about why they were baptizing people why did the Essenes baptize why was john baptizing anybody I didn't have interesting thoughts. I had interesting questions and Jake had them. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I remember now. Yeah. Who had the what was your question about it? Um just that we associate baptism with like Jesus and becoming a Christian, but John was baptizing before Jesus was on the scene. So baptism existed and it meant something. What was it for? And Jake, your response was? Uh, baptism has been around for a very long time. Right. Most, reli most religions have some form of baptism. Mm -hmm. Either uh, spiritual or physical, yeah. Yeah, but most of them actually had to do with water. Like uh, the, the even the Hindu washing in the... The Ganges? Ga Ganges, yeah. Ganges is a mountain range, right? Ganges okay. River? It was the Ganges okay. River. Okay, the Ganges River. So like Yeah, the it's the Ganges watching, River. Yeah. Uh the water ceremonies in in Buddhism. Uh you know, mm. there's there's sacred there's sacred water ceremonies in almost every single religion on on earth for a long time. And in in ancient Judaism, uh to every every menstruation cycle a, a woman would be baptized. So they could re-enter into community clean, mm -hmm. and so the idea of baptism is to is to wash off the old community, the old way, and to go into the mm -hmm. new one. And so, if you follow the line of thinking of the Essenes, John was baptizing people from the old life that they used to have, that was part of empire, part of of. Um, uh, the the imperial system, like the the pharaoh, the pharaoh system, the the system of right. hurry, into the Essene right. culture of pause and Sabbath and and rest and luxury. Mm. Um, so like we we often said Jesus preached the the year of jubilee, and if you look at how John was living, John was living in the jubilee as well he was living in that celebration that outpouring of of wealth um mm. so they had they had the same message i think john was a little more allegorical um dramatic mm. in his approach yeah right and and yeah i think that the the vedics the hindus have a really beautiful celebration of i guess you could say it's baptism with and it just it just happened or is happening. It's Dolly, already happened. Holly, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So holly is when they take chalk, this colored chalk, and they throw it all over each other. And it's just really quite beautiful because it's a celebration of the, the separation of good and evil, but also that good wins over evil. So the night before, they have this celebration that the evil spirits are dead. And then the holly festival is the colors represent like red represents love and something like that. Like each color represents something and they throw color. These have you seen this Shreya before? Mm -hmm. They throw color yeah. all over each other. It is quite I've always wanted to go to a holly festival, um, never have made it, but I will make it. They have them downtown Portland where the Hindu uh groups get together and they celebrate holly on it's it happened this month um in the month of mm -hmm. march okay verse nine let's do it about that time jesus came from nazareth nazareth of galilee and john baptized him in the jordan river while he was coming up out of the water jesus saw heaven splitting open and the spirit like a dove coming down on him and there was a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. I love that. At once, the spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild animals and the angels took care of him. So this is where we begin to move from because Matthew and and uh, Luke have genealogies at the very beginning, but Mark is very spiritual at the beginning. So there's a very spirit body Jesus that is happening. And so we see the spirit descending on Jesus. We see the spirit moving Jesus out into the wilderness. And we have this idea of 40 days um, tempted by Satan, which ha has a match to some other Hebrew um, narratives. So let's unpack this. Like now we have Jesus coming to John. That would have been a nerve wracking experience to baptize Jesus, I think. Um, so maybe John was a little bit, I don't know, apprehensive or anxiety filled that's why he you know don't look at me look at him type of thing and so what do you guys think of this passage that jesus came to be baptized why would jesus have to be baptized in the first place so here's what i was noticing like i don't i don't see that happening in mark um i think we see that okay. happening in the other gospels but um like Jesus isn't, there's nothing in this text showing Jesus walking into this situation going, I'm the savior, I'm going to get baptized and then do my ministry. It it looks right. more like he was in the crowd listening to John the Baptist, was compelled to come forward and get mm. baptized, and then all of a sudden the heavens open. Mm. You know, like I wonder if Jesus knew that that was going to happen. Um. So maybe Jesus, are you saying that maybe Jesus was like the rest of us that were sitting there listening to some yeah. you know, great, spe great speaker and then we're overwhelmed with emotion and we go to the altar and cry and 
accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we're baptized in our clothes that day or something. Like, is that what you're saying? Yeah. That, that pot That's kind of what okay. it looks like. Okay. It does look like that, doesn't it? Jake, what do you think of this passage? Why was Jesus baptized in the first place? I'm... I mean, it... it... I think it's just so submission. And when we talk through, when we talk through the faith of Jesus, mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a constant theme throughout Mark that, that Jesus had faith in God. Jesus was not all knowing. And so mm -hmm. I think when we, we like to place the, uh, the all knowingness on Jesus, that Jesus knew it was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. I think there was some faith there, but there, mm -hmm. there wasn't a, a certainty. There was just hope. And so, um, I, I, I read, I read the gospels in a very economic lens. Uh, mm. and Which so when, when we go through Mark, especially you'll see Jesus stand against, um, against the empire of the day Rome and you've already read one section of it that the son of God. And so it was kind of a, a stand in the face of, <laughs> of that. What I am, mm -hmm. what I'm looking up is <clears throat> the idea of, of Joshua crossing the Jordan mm -hmm. into creating mm -hmm. a new kingdom. And so Jesus' name, Jesus is the, is the Hellenized, the Greek name of, right. of Jesus. Jesus' Hebrew Joshua. name is, is Joshua. And so Yeshua, yeah. Yeshua, Joshua, that's the same as, as Joshua in the Old Testament. And Joshua's ministry to create a new civilization, a new kingdom, started at the crossing of the Jordan. And so that's mm -hmm. when Joshua took power from from Moses, took over power from Moses into into the kingdom of Israel, and then crossed into the Jordan to to create this this new this new culture, this new this new kingdom. Um, not kingdom, because I don't know what you would even call it. Because that's an empire word. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's a, it was just a community of people that that formulated under under judges of the time. Um, there's mm -hmm. a lot to uh, that ancient Jewish culture for the time period. Um, but Joshua was also called uh, the son of God. And so as we look at Joshua being the ruler, baptizing into, mm -hmm. into the Jordan and coming out, I think as well, you also see there might be some metaphor there of, of John the Baptist. The next scene is John the Baptist being arrested and taken away. So perhaps we could look and see Moses, Joshua relationship as well mm -hmm. of the old Testament. Like Moses couldn't right. enter the promised land or something. Correct. Right. Jo uh, so I, I see um, every time. Oh, go ahead. Shreya. You go. Yeah. No, it's going to take us in a slightly different direction. You go first. Well, I was just, I was just going to mention that that the metaphor here is really important because 
water in all of scripture means some means something whether it be the woman at the well and the living water or we see jesus being baptized by water or acts 238 god telling us to be baptized by water um or they were baptized by water rather <laughs> and and so water like in the exodus meant something water at the jordan meant something uh water with ishmael and uh, hagar hagar and ishmael out in the wilderness water in a spring that meant something uh so so every time you see water you can bet that there's salvation around it at some degree there's salvation and I, I, I just want to take a simple approach and then have you guys unpack this. Do, do you think that Jesus possibly just was baptized because first, Jesus was one of us? And second, if Jesus had the cognition that he was the Messiah or the cognition that he was, was God, that he wanted to be like one of us. So, so the Jews or the Essenes or just the people around would have gotten baptized in a commemoration or a ceremonial washing to remember the salvation of the Exodus. There, that would have been basically the reason to get baptized mm -hmm. is to commemorate like even the basin washing before the temple getting washed by the basin entering is a cleansing of evil so and yeah. metaphorically so that cleansing of evil going into the temple get washed before you go so jesus not necessarily being needing i'm not saying that jesus needed cleansing of evil but that's what everyone was doing and commemorating the exodus in a sense that the egyptians died in this water and all of israel all the hebrew people were saved through that water mm -hmm. so so every time you see water, then you see salvation in scripture. So, so I would, I would venture to say, since Mark is simplistic and complex at the same time, that possibly Jesus just got baptized to be one of us. There's, there's this new, um, this new campaign. It's this new initiative, Christian initiative called he gets us and he gets us campaign probably has you know, their own reasons, their own motivations for doing what they're, were, they're doing. I would venture to say, you know, the language of that sentence, he gets us. I, I don't know right now if God gets us <laughs> because it's, I don't know if God ever has gotten us. It's more, do we get God? I think that's more important. Do we get God? Um, but, um, Jesus didn't come to get us. Jesus came to be one of us, mm -hmm. to live with us. And so I just see this as maybe one of those moments that Jesus is not necessarily um, having this like spiritual, like humongous moment, like Sheree is saying. It's not this like, like spiritual moment. He's just doing it because because that's what people did and he wanted to do what people do. Is that too sacrilegious to say? 
No. No, I it mean... just to me it sounds like Jesus is trying to blend in. And there's something well, about that that feels funny to me. <laughs> so I mean you mosh at the concert when people mosh, right? I mean that's I that's don't what you do. <laughs> let's take a let's take a pivot. Um Okay. So in the question of when did Jesus become God? Mm. Um some people believe that it was at at birth that Jesus became God. Some believe that it was a, at death that Jesus became God. Some people at the resurrection. Some people even past that, the ascension. Mm-hmm. Um, a a big point is in this passage could be taken that Jesus became God at baptism. Yeah, some people do believe that, yeah. That the Spirit of God came down and rested upon Jesus like a dove. And it's a claiming voice mm-hmm. coming from heaven. That you're my fun son, and I'm and I'm yeah, yeah, I'm well pleased. Happiness. Yeah, uh, right. and the idea here is like, do we believe? When do we believe that Jesus became God? I think this is, I, I personally believe that that Mark believed that at this point, this is when Jesus became God. Hmm. hmm. So I have a question, and this is a theological question because this is the Tertullian Trinity here that you see God's voice, God the Creator. Some people call mm-hmm. God the Father's voice, God the Son, Jesus, Spirit, the Sustainer, Spirit, the Counselor. So you have, you have God, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit, right? And in the divine dance, we see in that metaphor, the divine dance, we have three persons and one God. The question that is always just renumerated in my head is, does Jesus, and, and I have been listening to philosophers and theologians, and they dance around this subject still, which is really baffling to me. Does Jesus have to be God? For? For the fulfillment of the purposes of the cross and the resurrection. Um, if you're taking this is where we that, get really honest. Does, does the Messiah have to be God? The answer is no. Not at all. And... I don't think any any Jew would put the Messiah in the same position of God Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the biggest hindrance of, of any Jewish person with Jesus is that we place Jesus at the same status as Yahweh, and that's not, that they can't even fathom that, right? I don't think it's I don't think it's yeah. wrong. I don't think it's wrong to believe that Jesus could be God or does Jesus have to be God? Um we believe in the text that says and God raised Jesus up to be this at the same status as God's self. But 
if you take that and look at it and say, well, if, mm-hmm. if God had to raise Jesus up, that would denote that Jesus was not always risen up. Right. And, and the question then is, because I, I do believe that Jesus is God. I have no reason to not believe that. Yet I do know some of my friends and some of the people that I know and some people in history, um, like some Methodist pastors back in the day, uh, they did not believe that Jesus was God. I mean, those of you who are a part of the Methodist movement, I'm sorry to, you know, blow up your balloon there, but there are some holiness and Is there a Methodist balloon. I'm, uh, I'm unaware Methodists, of Methodists. Yeah, there's there's some there was some Methodist beliefs back in the day, especially on the frontier movement of the American frontier, the religious movement, um, the American Reformation that did not believe that Jesus is God. And and this is where we then get some of the other movements that are out there. Like, Mm -hmm. let's say Jehovah's Witness believes, you know, that Jesus is not all the way God. Um, The requirement for salvation, if you look at there's are there any requirements for salvation? Um you know, is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? (laughs) Yes. Do you want to follow him with your life? Yes. So, so those requirements or those, I guess, those statements and questions that we ask are not necessarily a deep theological version of is Christ at the same level as God? Yeah. I mean, that's a very simplistic approach to a baptism. Uh, if you're being asked to to affirm like the Nicene Creed, then you do affirm that Jesus is mm-hmm. part well, of that sure. filioque, uh, divine dance, and then there's another big word called uh, homoousius. Homoousia and homoousia, yeah. Is is the, the, the of the same fabric as God, and so cut cut from the same cloth. So is is one of the same. Um, mm. yet I just, I just have pondered that for a long time. That is, is it really, cause when people get baptized and they enter into their Christian journey, I could probably guarantee that most of them do not understand the Trinitarian theology, right? God, the creator, God, the son and God, the sustainer. I, I just don't see that as just really. And so a, a requirement for salvation, I would not say is this. I have this mental ascent understanding because most people yeah. don't even really think in those realms. Nor is it, mm-hmm. is it necessary, I think. Um, and this is actually a good good segue into the idea of, and I'll bring it up even though we weren't going to, the Jesus Seminar of the 70s. Yeah. Well, the and, text the, the text demands it. So, <clears throat> so the idea is that um, scholars got together. By the way, there's there's no historical proof that Jesus lived. No, like how you had documentation out there Jesus does not have that besides writings after 
well after his death. There are writings and there are instances like in uh, Josephus and other historians that talk about Jesus and Christians. Um, But no person in that day and age, unless they were of very high elite status, would have any documentation that they're alive at all. all. And so to need that type of proof is, is not, is not fair in the historical context. Um, No, no scholar of antiquity of that age would ever say that Jesus didn't survive or didn't survive, didn't, didn't live uh, because there's so much other proof texts outside of scripture that, that point to a person what what that person was or did is different you know um some people have deeper spiritual meaning for it some people just believe that it was it was a figure in history that made some huge wakes um if i could pause you for a second if i could pause you for a second i i'm i totally understand what you're saying and agree with it there's also that idea that the text that was written or the text that we have, the Bible, is a holy, sacred idea. And the text that, that shows that these people existed and these people walked and did things and miracles happened and, 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 and. Let's say the life of Christ. Really, the life of Christ really is based on our faith in the text. So I do believe that you have faith in Christ, but you have faith in a lot of things. You know, I have faith in people, and I have also faith that, you know, my my skill saw is I can plug that in and it's going to work, right? So I have faith in objects too and technology um but we can have faith in text that the text is true so so there has to be a line that we cross eventually that that we we actually are affirming that the bible and what the bible is saying is true and what the bible is saying actually at least metaphorically and some historically and allegorically uh what it's saying is is real and applicable and and true so so there is that affirmation at some point that yes there's not you know these these monumental outside scripture um recorded the life of Christ, but there is that monument, like mountains of texts that affirm that the Bible is some form of, um, has reliability. There's some goodness behind it. Yeah. Um, so go back to the Jesus seminar and talk, and talk about that a little bit. Um, scholars got together, scholars of antiquity looked at the text scripture um, and they had different shades of coins or, 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 uh, tokens, and they would throw these tokens into a bucket mm-hmm. where they believed each text was literal or 
allegorical or fake. And so the only ones that they all agreed on, the only thing that they all agreed on is that Jesus was a person and the Sermon on the Mount. But if you follow out the Sermon on the Mount and you believe Jesus is, the, is an actual person, the entire world will change. And it did. And now we have to change right. it again, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, that's that. So just because you don't, you may not, your version of Christ may not be that Jesus is, I don't want to say it. You don't know what to do with it. We'll say it that way. Because I think all the authors of the Old the New Testament are trying to figure out what to do with Jesus all the way through. Mm-hmm. Trying to explain it, trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Even theologians. Well, they didn't. Well they and, didn't. Uh, according to the text, they didn't know ever what to do with Jesus. So they they knew one thing to do with Jesus yeah. is kill him. So okay, so let's go to the forty days just quickly. The forty days in the wilderness that is in direct relationship to Moses and the Hebrew people being put in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, there's just too much, you know, through the water of salvation, through the, the Nile or through the, um, through the, the splitting of the water we have then through the red sea, the the reed sea that we have now salvation on the other side of that. We have some challenges, some problems. We try to do our own thing. Um, we don't follow God again. And then we are casted out into the wilderness for 40 years, a generation. So this 40 days, just like the 400 years, I think that there's, there's some relationship there with the number 40, um, Mm -hmm. that just shows, you know, tempted by Satan, uh, out in the wilderness, he was amongst wild animals and angels took care of him. I, I just think that that's an interesting thing there. It's like, why is that included? He was amongst wild animals and the angels took care of him. That just seems like a weird, I think, thing to include, don't you? Yeah. Is there, so I've heard there is a connection between wild animals and demons. Is that a thing? Well, I mean, I guess we can over-spiritualize it, but I just think that that just shows that we're talking about flesh and blood. Yeah. That this is a person and being out in wild, with wild animals, wild animals can eat you. I, I just kind of yeah. think it's a funny, weird thing to put in there, but it just kind of shows flesh and blood again. Okay, verse 14. Can we go? Okay. okay after John was no, arrested, no, no, Jesus... No, go back. Oh, can you no, hear me? Nope. No. <laughs> yeah, I can. Really? Okay, so the idea of of Jesus being in the in the wilderness amongst the wild animals could also be an allusion to Isaiah eleven, in that. Mm. Um, where are we at? Righteousness will be the belt around his hips, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. 
the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion will feed together. And the little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox, a nursing child. <clears throat> will play over a snake's hole. Toddlers will reach over, right over the serpent's den. They will not, not won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. So perhaps the idea that that Jesus was in the in the wilderness, hanging out with wild beasts, was a picture of of salvation. Hmm. Perhaps. Well, again, it's at least purification. Some people would relate it to a purifying experience of overcoming, I guess, the Satan, you know, the temptation. Mm. Uh, some people think that this is where Jesus becomes God. Mm -hmm. That this is where he becomes God. So, so we have it at birth. When you say son of God, just the virgin birth. Um, or you have at the river, the affirmation, you're my son who I'm well pleased. That makes the dove, you know, that makes Jesus God. And then out here in the wilderness through the purification to become God, um, because God can't even look at evil. So, so we have that, you know, God can't be around evil. So he becomes the first, I guess, the first leap of becoming God. Hmm. But good. That's awesome. Okay. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing good news, God's good news. Let me just reset that really quick. Announcing God's good news, saying, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news okay so now we have some proclamation of good news uh jesus came announcing god's good news now is the time here comes god's kingdom the kingdom of god is here the kingdom of god is here as jesus passed alongside the sea of galilee he saw two brothers simon and andrew throwing fishing nets into the sea after uh for they were fishermen Come, follow me, he said, and I will show you how to fish for people. Right away, they left their nets and followed him. After going a little farther, he saw James and, and John, Zebedee's sons, the sons of Zebedee, in their, in, in their boat repairing the fishing nets. At that very moment, he called them. They followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired workers. So this is where the kids run off and... Leave the dad holding the net, doing the work. I'll be here when you guys get back. Don't worry. I'll hold down the fort, right? So come and follow me. So now we have Jesus choosing uh, disciples, uh, followers. That actually um, is a common thing for rabbi people to say. So rabbis would actually have groups of students and their choice to choose the um you know came the time to choose the student to the follower of the rabbi uh, like gamaliel would stand before a group of people and he would say come and follow me he would just pick them out of the crowd 
and say, you, 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 you come and follow me. And so then that was his next group of disciples out of the crowd. So it was like a rabbinical, uh, statement, a call to, um, to come and follow the follow. The difference here is I will show you how to fish for people. That's the metaphor of catching people. Any thoughts on any thoughts on that? Um, so there, there are a couple of reasons that I have a hard time late dating Mark. Mm. Uh, and late dating means what do you mean by it, that? Putting it well after like into the, uh, the one hundreds AD. So a lot of people believe right. that Mark was written quite a while after Jesus died. Um, what, and I, I usually take more of that approach with, with texts that the consensus of scholars will put it further out. Yet you see, you see in 14 where it says after John was arrested, mm-hmm. there's no story or context or anything. It just right, stated right. that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's right. a, he's a minor figure, and so there had to have been some group knowledge about what was happening. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And the second reason yeah. I don't I don't late date Mark is that there's no mention of of the temple being destroyed in seventy two. So right. That that's the main simple. reason, right? That's the main reason. But uh, like even those little caveats of well, after John was arrested, who John who? Um, Right. He wouldn't have mm-hmm. been that central of a figure in history unless unless we had multiple accounts. And so, yeah. But so traditionally, we don't really know exactly who with with all the Gospels. We don't know exactly who wrote them. Um, some of them, some people believe that the Gospels uh, had a what they call a Q version or the beginning version. So you had another gospel that actually was written or, or spoken. And then it's the Q form gospel. And then Matthew and, and Luke and others borrowed from that Q. And so they wrote their own versions of it. But Mark is often seen as the first. Yeah. The first gospel, the oldest one to be written. It's interesting that it's so short. Yeah. And then there's also a book. It moves so fast. There's a book called the Didache, which we still have, yeah. which is the oldest, oldest book of Christianity that we, that we have possession of even older than, than the Bible itself or the new Testament. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, John's fast. John's short. Um, doesn't put Mark, much in. Mark is I'm fast. Sorry. Mark is short. Yeah. Forgive me. Uh, it doesn't fit much into, into context. And so like mm-hmm. y- you are expected to know these people. Right. 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 So the story, maybe you could allude to the story is fresh enough. Uh, the story is fresh enough to assume that the readers will know who you're talking about. Yeah. Within the first generation, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's that's an interesting and good insight. Okay. All right. Can we move forward? Please go ahead. Okay. 
All right. Jesus and his followers went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and started teaching. The people were amazed by his teaching, for he was teaching with them with authority, not like the legal experts. Suddenly there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screamed, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I've actually had this happen to me. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God, the Holy One from God. Silence, Jesus said, speaking harshly to the demon. Come out of him. The unclean spirit shook him and screamed. Then it came out. Everyone was shaken and questioned among themselves. What's this? Which I would do too. A new teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. Right away, the news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. So this brings up the, uh, the miraculous that Jesus is now overseeing so, uh, the miraculous. So Jesus becoming God at baptism or becoming God after uh, the, the wilderness period. And now we enter into a first miracle. That actually, that version makes a little sense there because there is like a transformation so, so, you know, if you wanted to believe and Jesus became God at baptism, cool. And you, your defense of that could be that the, that the miracle of having authority over demons is right there in this, let's say, uh, said first action story towards, uh, a non-disciple, just a common person. So let's unpack, uh, let's unpack demon possession for a moment. Because that seems like what we need to put people to bed with right now. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I, so honestly, what came up for me reading this text was that video you sent me, Kevin, from the, the Asbury revival. Okay. Yeah. Where it, it was purported that this very thing happened. Um and and it's the video is very similar to what occurred in the text. Right. And to me that feels suspicious. Right. Suspicious. And of course, we're not going to crap on people's sacred space. You know, whatever happened there happened right. there. And, you know, they can they can own that story. It is suspicious whenever we see miraculous things today happen in such a pattern or in such a mm -hmm. copy and paste version, because yeah. uh, because I guess when miraculous happens, it's for a certain purpose miraculous over certain things meant different. Like if somebody was demon possessed many times, that meant something completely different than what our version of deep demon possession is today right. or whatever we're claiming is demon possession. So somebody back in ancient times, there is allusion to the, the very fact it's not an illusion. It's the very fact people believe that all mental illness, all lots of physical illness, um, anytime that somebody just acted in an obscure, non 
neurotypical way would definitely be uh, deemed as some kind of possession. Now, whether that be the sins of their parents being passed to them mm -hmm. or actually demon possession, they believed either one of those. So this person, you know, could have been just a person that was, you know, let's know. say, huh? Schizophrenic. Schizophrenic. Let's just anachronistic. Yeah, schizophrenic or, or maybe some other form of mental illness could have gone to um, this situation and then this happened. It's because the reason why it happened the way that it did is because of what the very common Jewish practice and belief about people's mental health was back in right. the day. Yeah. So yes, because of that historical idea, definitely <laughs> when those things happen today, we're just like, okay, what, what is, yeah. what are we doing? Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Any, we are in a society that any, any detriment, uh, any impediment that you have is based solely upon your relationship with God. And so, mm -hmm. uh, even saying less fortunate ones, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. So the, the idea is that you're less fortunate because God's favor did not fall upon you. Your God's favor didn't fall upon right. you because mm -hmm. of some, of some sin that happened in the past, uh, with your family or that you've done or that, uh, was passed on to you somehow. It was almost like the sin gene that, that got handed down to you. Right. Um, right. And so what we, what we see in the text is that Jesus is constantly helping people back into society into mm -hmm. to be able to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's go over that next one before you conclude there, because I think we need to conclude there with the next uh, passage. Just this is our last one. Let's just go. Over. We got through 31 verses, let's say. I think we did a good job. Uh, but let's just do this one more in Mark one twenty nine. It says after leaving the okay, synagogue, you, Jesus fix, changed. Fix your, fix your mic before you start reading. There. Oh, sorry. Sorry. There we go. We have mic problems tonight. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus, James and John went home with Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed sick with a fever and they told Jesus about her at once. He went to her took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her and she served them. So huh. that's an interesting, that's a really an interesting, just a quick miracle, a quick healing that we see. But Shreya made a good point in our pre-work. Shreya, mm -hmm. you saw something in this that I just want you to, to speak out because then we get to the spreading of the, the miracles, but just with these two miracles, what do you see? What did you tell me you saw in these two miracles? Cause that was fascinating to me. Yeah. And I don't, we haven't even quite gotten there. It technically is, is chapter two. Um, right. But reading through the gospels and, and I would say all four of the gospels, um, it's very rare that Jesus forgives someone without also healing them. Um, so like we tend to think of forgiveness as 
you know, a, a sin issue and it's about making me right with God again. Um, but when Jesus is forgiving people as well as healing them, it's um, like removing the barriers that allow them to be part of society. Um, so like if you were blind, it's because you sinned or your parents sinned, but then if you're healed, you can see now your sins are forgiven. The things that were preventing you from being in community have been taken away right. and now you can be a full member of that community again. Right. So it removes the barriers of society because these were definite. <laughs> all physical uh any kind of real physical ailment of any kind was mm -hmm. deemed as like a you know you were not blessed like jake said you're less fortunate you didn't right. receive god's fortune in your life um and so what makes jesus very human to me is Jesus is doing very human things, even in like said miraculous. So mm -hmm. taking barriers away so a human can be with a human again. So uh, forgiveness, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that forgiveness has less to do about what God thinks of you and what you think of God I think forgiveness has more to do with what we think of each other and ourselves. I think mostly ourselves and, and, yeah. and yes, absolutely. And ourselves. So, so this is kind of those passages for me. We're about ready to get into, you know, skin diseases, leprosy, and all kinds of good things that, that those mm -hmm. are, those are the metaphors. If you could take that as a metaphor, just for a moment, mission of this for me, Midrash, it's called midrashing, not Mishnah. Midrash this with me, that when you, when you, if you just took this as a metaphor, that lack of forgiveness is like a disease, and resentment is like a poison. It's like a toxic poison that hinders us from others. And hinders us from being in community and in 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 society and the more resentment and the more hate that we have towards one another uh, that becomes like almost like you're becoming untouchable you're like a person that the metaphoric leper right and so the metaphoric leper is i don't want to be around you i don't want to talk to you i don't want to be in the same place in the same space as you because we hold so much resentment. So I think that if you just look this as a simple metaphor, that Jesus is releasing people from their sicknesses, but also like person to person, like healing their, their hurts and their habits and their hangups that they can actually now have relationship with each other. Um, mm -hmm. Desmond Tutu talks about in his, in his book, The Book of Forgiving, which is an excellent read, talks about that forgiveness has everything to do actually with you and not the person that you're forgiving too. That you put yourself in a prison when you don't forgive. Yeah. So you're these, these, yeah. yeah. So 
I think that Jesus is like taking these people and releasing them from maybe, maybe uh, even like their othering and their resentments and their hurts and their, their challenges so that they actually be in society and with people again and loving their neighbors. Well, if you think about it as well, neighbors loving them, they came under the context that they also believed that they had sinned or that their parents had right. sinned. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And so the, and so the amount of, the amount of unforgiveness that was probably in them as well, especially with a disease or a, or a malformation that was at birth, uh, blindness or, mm -hmm. or whatever that, yeah, you would immediately think that your parents had sinned. That's mm -hmm. the lack of forgiveness that you would probably hold at that point too would be horrendous. Right. So we have sickness, we have demon possession. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases and he threw out many demons. He threw out many barriers and he threw out many hindrances to relationship building the community again. I think that's a beautiful, mm -hmm. a beautiful idea, Shreya. Thank you for sharing that earlier. And thank you for sharing that with us. All right. Well, we made it through, uh, made it through 31 verses. We, our plan was to make it through two chapters, but that's okay. We had to have some openers and some, some deep discussion. All right. We're going to end with that. And that does us justice. Thank you, Sharia Bodner, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Jacob Flug, for joining us. Um, thank you for your expertise and your insights and teaching me something about this, this passage. So next week, we're going to continue, see how far we get. And with that, uh, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.